Hi, I'm your host, Michael Gilbo, here to let you know about a new and innovative theater major, the BA in Theater and Business Arts at the University of Providence. Get the education and experience you need as a theater artist and the business acumen to succeed in your career. Visit broadwaybullet.com and stay tuned to the end of the program for more info. Now, enjoy the show. Center, it sounds very huge and elevated, and that's what it feels like. Like once you're working there, because rent is about much more than just friendship, love, and musical theater. It was about something that shook musical theater. People are becoming more and more comfortable with, you know, issue of people being different. I mean, we do it all. I mean, you know, we don't we don't back away from anything. Welcome to Broadway Bullet, Volume 402, for February 18th, 2010. I'm your host, Michael Gilbo, and we've got a jam-packed episode for you this week. We've got the neo-futurists here to talk about their new show, The Soup Show, and some scandalous stuff it is. We've also got the new musical from Prospect Theater Company, The Hidden Sky. We have got The Wonder from The Queen's Company, that uh, classical company that casts everybody with all women. We've also got the benefit show My AIDS. We've got the play Stuck and the return of Marty Cooper with On the Positive Side. So a whole bunch of stuff. Uh, be sure to keep telling your friends. Let them know how to subscribe to Broadway Bullet and how to get it. And um, I'm, I'm still anxiously awaiting to hear the official release date for the BMI CD, uh, No More Revivals. And we'll be letting you know all about that as soon as we do. Uh, so with all that said, we like I said, we got a full, full, full episode. So uh, sit back, enjoy the ride, and let's get started. On the boards. Well, the neo-futurists, the people who brought you the acclaimed Too Much Light Makes the Baby Go Blind here in New York, are on to another show. This one is The Soup Show, and it's celebrating 30 years of Women's History Month with a uh, a lot of naked people in bathtubs, according yes. to the cover of their well, postcard. Well, not a lot. Hot tubs. <laughs> Just three. I mean, I feel like a lot of people three sometimes, but... in one hot tub. Yeah. You can three really feel like a crowd, though. Yeah, a in a little tub on stage. Yeah. So we've got, as you're hearing, we've got Desiree Birch, Kara Francis, and Erica Livingston, uh, writer-performers of The Soup Show. How are you guys doing? Doing great. Well. Really glad to be here. Thanks. Do you want to introduce yourselves so people can connect your voice with your name? Sure. Uh, I'm Desiree Birch. I'm Erica Livingston. I'm Kara Francis. You guys' voices sound amazing. Yeah, well, we had to turn that little magic on. <laughs> <laughs> well, I guess first things first, tell us a little bit about what is the soup show. And I guess the first question is, considering if anybody gets this cover and they, they see your, your three lovely ladies uh, in the flesh... <laughs> on the cover, yes. is, is this what, is this what they get? We is like this truth in advertising? Yeah. Yourself fully to the audience. <laughs> yes, <laughs> absolutely. Um, I'm not allowed to say that it's three chicks naked in a hot tub anymore. Uh, okay. <laughs> so I'm not allowed way. to say that, even though it's <laughs> the Soup Show is um, our new show. It's a full length piece by the Neos. It is about the three of us, but also is pulling from interview text of um, around 50 interviews from different people, all different backgrounds, not just women. But it is a show about women for women. And we're using structures of... Okay, so the the show is, is a medicine show. We're, we're basically, um, we're looking at uh, at women and, and people as a uh, we're kind of like 
taking the problems that women have faced uh, and turning them and tweaking them into kind of these like carnival freaks. And we are then bottling potions and elixirs out of our bodies and our personal experiences and our stories and our and laughter and our jokes. Yeah. We're turning those ingredients into products, salves, potions, remedies, cure-alls, elixirs. Yeah, we're basically foods. kind of like repackaging the woman as commodity and offering the real deal as opposed to the, the kind of prepackaged stuff that you get. So as you were saying, with that postcard, it is truth in advertising. You're going to see everything that you get uh, or you're going to get everything that you see. <laughs> Maybe rather, plus, and more. Plus yes. more because yes. you don't see what's below the waterline in that yeah, tub. Yeah, exactly. And uh, <laughs> it's a lot. I mean, you, would, you could never there. even Imagine that you're gonna. See. Are you guys ready to see the show? You're gonna get it. <laughs> you're gonna get it. That should be our tagline. You're gonna yeah, get it. So many. Yeah, tag-lines. and it'll just be one creepy audience member and us nightly. <laughs> <laughs> um, like, he's like, I want to drink your bath water. Yeah, right. <laughs> There'll probably be more of those. You could auction off the bathwater at the end of each we night. We should. Well, we are serving it. Yeah, we're bottling we are, it. And we're giving we're it out. So, yeah, exactly. That's kind we of... We bottle ho- it multiple times yeah. through the show. Hopefully I mean, by hopefully, the end of the show, you're going to want something real bad. That's kind of a neo-futurist thing is to try to let your audience not leave without a gift if you want it. So yeah. we're gift givers. So you're gonna <laughs> get you want you're gonna get a lot. A bottle of our bathwater. <laughs> we is have available. been saving bottles for months. We have hundreds of recycled bottles that Let's we, say we carefully have over a thousand bottles now and delabeled, and we will be filling those with our bathwater. Our magic with elixirs. Us. A magic yes. elixir. We'll be filling those bottles with ourselves. Yes. We took those bottles from the world. We scraped them of all of their productry and, <laughs> and all of their purpose and we Im- are going to imbue and imbibe them with our own essence. <laughs> Ew. Wow. <laughs> That's what we're going to do. It's true. It's so, so my happen. question is, as performance artists, have you found over the past you know, decade, is performance art uh, losing or gaining its stigma? <laughs> losing and gaining its stigma. <laughs> I mean, yeah. performance art... When you tell people you're performance artists, what like are the re- what are, what is the average person's reaction? Well, I definitely feel like I have to qualify. You know, just say like I'm a performance artist. Uh, you know, I say that I'm a monologuist. I you know I do comedy. I do sketch. I do random things on stage. I usually feel like I don't explain it in the two words performance artist. I like people to think of flaming meat and like I don't know. American flags. Like, I think, I think that yeah. that's great. Yeah. I think that it depends on who you say it to. Like, if I say I'm a performance artist to my grandmother, it's going to take a lengthy, mm-hmm. <laughs> multiple paragraph explanation now, of what in the world that means. Now, yeah. You mean that you, you paint while people watch you. Right. <laughs> yeah, because I think and there's even, not necessarily an understanding of even what that is outside of New York and some places. I know. Places, yeah, know, that so. is it. You, it's definitely needs an explanation outside of this city. Within the city, I do feel like it has lost a lot of that weird stigma, I think. But maybe that's just looking from the inside out. Yeah, I mean, I think just because it's so wide and varied, like, you know, 
but I don't know if people necessarily attribute a lot of things that other people do as performance art, even though that's what it is. Uh, I mean, I think the word performance has taken over performance art. It's like, you know, it's performance. And then it can just be whatever you right. decide to do on stage. And then performance art always seems like, oh, you know, there's going to be an American flag in my butt. I'm going to be covered in honey. I don't know. I just feel like people, <laughs> like Miranda July is a great example. Like, she's made it mainstream to be a performance artist almost, right? And even like people in, who do art on the street, I think that counts like, like what is it, Princess Hijab? Princess, am I saying the right thing? She's a, a anonymous, I guess, perform, mainly a graffiti artist who's like spray painting burkas over pictures of um, of you know, heavily, like, scantily clad women and men on mm-hmm. billboards in Paris. And I think even that kind of stuff, yeah. really, to me, is, like, what is so exciting about performance art is that it can really be, like, I have I have friends who do, you know, m- wordless moving installations in galleries. And it's just, it just encompasses so much. What we it do does. is more towards, like, the theater yeah. side. <laughs> right. But, that's it's, still a part of does, it. Does I the really, naked cowboy in Times Square constitute a performance sure. artist? Yeah. I would love him to come to this show. Oh, my God. <laughs> you know him. Please get him to the show. Um, I don't know. I think that... Um, I think that the thing about performance art is that it, it there is a certain danger to it in the sound of it because you don't know what you're going to get because it could be the naked cowboy yeah. or it could be the neo futurist or it could be gorilla girls or it could be just nobody who like decided to do because something I about feel their like, teeth. I feel like know? what happens to you as an audience member when you hear performance art and you make the choice to go to that, yeah. you go with a much more open mind. Yep. You just go in like I don't know, but <laughs> okay. I heard that they do this thing, and I don't know. You have to see it, right? Mm-hmm. So now you're both credited, all three of you are credited, both, we're both credited, uh, as <laughs> writer performers. So my question right. is, artistically, structurally, how do you structure an evening of performance art? How do you go about structuring, you know, a show like The Soup? We have to get all of our voices in. We have to... Is there any through. structure? Do you have, like, a, a yeah. layout? Yeah, structure has to... Yeah, I mean, we worked a lot on the structure beforehand of, of what elements we wanted to use to, like, you know, set out a, a sort of arc. Uh, because, you know, in too much light, there's less of a, a an overarching arc to the evening because the smaller pieces are done at random and the arc comes from just how you experience it. Mm-hmm. But I think we had to set out a little bit more, you know, to create one, to create a journey. Um, but at the same time that structure does then come about like you can't just start off with it and go like okay this is what it is now we're just gonna do it like right. you do have to just kind of jump in feet first and then find it as and you're especially it. because we're ourselves and we tell our real stories yeah. you can't manufacture an arc ahead of time and then be like okay now let's have all of our stories fit this because mm-hmm. they might not fit that right um, and something that we found you don't in- have that moment of glorious Ah, uh, lesson learned and resolve and all three there. of change. We'll have sure. a nice moment, but it <laughs> won't be that. Yeah. We like, will have a really great moment, yeah. though. But nothing's going to be resolved because everybody's still in the world. You and can't resolve, ever resolve the you know? conflict. I mean, I mean the con- the what is the conflict end. anyway? First off, there's no conflict. I mean, it's just us. We look for con- When we argue, we're like, yes, we found something because you can't manufacture it. And then really in the end... There is no conflict, right? It's just we're talking about being women in this day and age. We're not going to solve that by the end. Yeah, we're just going to make. <laughs> but yeah, exactly. We're just going to celebrate it. And, yeah. and part of and part of the thing that's exciting about the construct of the medicine show and revisiting that is that 
um, we are, in a sense, snake oil salesmen because anything that we are attempting to bottle and answer and give to people is going to be in some way a lie. Because while it is true as it can possibly be for us and while it is rooted in ourselves, it um, much like, you know, the opposite of what advertising tries to do, which is to, to give you the idea that if you buy, um, you know, Jergens or... Um, I don't know what else, uh, cable, that (laughs) you'll be completely spiritually fulfilled. We we cannot promise to do that. Um, So... I, yeah. I've seen many of those Time Warner ads of offering spiritual fulfillment. Yeah. For cable, sure, or for yogurt, or yeah. anything. You know, should be an advertising. Yeah, spiritual fulfillment. We, from we the can't. Extra we can't do that. So, and that's what's exciting. People about will it, get is, spiritual fulfillment from Broadway Bullet, I believe. Yeah, I believe that. I, I believe that. I believe, well, you're you're, you're selling your marketing ideas. You're putting ideas. You've out got there. many years ahead of us too. You've got like three years. If we were doing the Soup Show for three years, then eventually maybe. Maybe we could promise some spiritual fulfillment. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, maybe we, we, no, I think that we can promise spiritual. Give us three years. We'll meet back here in three years. <laughs> I take back my earlier statement of us not being like advertising and that we cannot offer. Okay, so advertising actually, <laughs> let me rework this. Oh, advertising dear. actually cannot offer spiritual fulfillment. They think they can, but they can't. We acknowledge that we're snake oil salesmen and that anything we tell you might actually be a lie, but. In that, I think that we stand a much greater chance of offering well, the true truth, spiritual yeah. fulfillment and the truth and um, and something that you can, like, take a bite out of. That was my... <laughs> well, well, you said the story, this is, you know, the three of you, yourselves on stage. So maybe I can ask each one of you to briefly tell, a, tell our listeners the most uh, interesting, weird, scandalous, whatever thing about yourself. Really? There's so many. I mean, it, it depends on it. Yeah, and it depends on who's listing and who thinks what is scandalous. How gross do we want to get? Yeah, oh, I, yeah. Because I mean, that's the thing is that it's all going to get gross eventually. That's a fun part of doing a show with like other women. It's just like you know, we there are like catacombs of things. You know, like their whole we'll, catacombs we'll be salesmen, of skeletons. Say it. What, what interesting, scandalous, gross thing about you? Do you, you sex, think might... sexy wise? Or... I, don't, I, don't, I, don't, I don't care. Sexy wise. Whatever you There's think. Some, might like, that's like way, way you. at the top of the list, and then there are other <laughs> things that are like, oh, yeah, there probably there's other things, but, like, the first thing that well, comes to mind is always like, oh. If you, I have one thing. If you were a slightly balding man with dark hair who ate at Daryl's restaurant, it's like a chain in Orlando, Florida, on University Boulevard, and I think it was maybe February, between February and April of... 2000, I spit in your coffee, and I felt really bad after I did it because you all of a sudden got nice, but you were really a dick before then, and that's why I spit in your coffee. Wow, that's more like a confession. Yeah. Yeah. Well, if you're listening, I'm kind of sorry. Whatever. People are going to be drinking your bath water in a couple weeks. Are you really that sorry? (laughs) There. There's that. Ah, scary. Um, I'm going to go really way back and say that this is something that formed, uh, that is, some, I don't know, maybe not scandalous, but is interesting to me and is a, definitely a part of who I am. Um, 
I got in big trouble as a child because I wanted to pee like a boy really, really bad. And my mom was a babysitter, and there was a guy, Brian Easley, who was close to my age, that taught me to pee like a boy. And I peed like a boy for maybe two years before my mom busted me, and then I got in big trouble, and I had to be retaught how to pee like a girl. <laughs> you pee like a boy for two years? Yeah, like I would show. stand I up Why over the toilet. It should be in the show. Wow. It does kind of fit with the show a little bit. I do feel like it really, it sounds silly, but I feel like it is a big part of who I am. <laughs> you said you didn't identify with penis envy. No, it's so funny, because we're all like, don't feel it, That means I want a penis, Kara. You are always trying to force the no, but the thing is that's so like, but that's totally there. Like all that contradiction that we're talking about in the show, you know, because when you brought up the whole thing about Freud and penis, I mean, we were like, we don't identify that. I've never wanted a penis. Blah 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 blah. But then you're talking about peeing like a boy, and I had that whole thing about the penis as myth that I like love that whole thing. It's still that same kind of like you know adulation of that the the idea even of a penis, if not a real one. You it know? would just well, be different. One of yeah. the questions that we asked, you know, I said that we did a bunch of interviews to pull from text from other voices. And one of the questions that we asked, I asked every interviewer, maybe you guys did too, was if you woke up as the opposite oh, yeah. sex suddenly one morning, what would you do? And the responses that I... I, of course, most people were like, masturbate, like almost, I would say. Well, why do you say it like that? That's know. the first thing I would do. Hello, I like check out the goods. <laughs> the ones that Duh. I identified with were the people who were like, I would freak out. I would be so uncomfortable. I mean, because yeah. I think that's really, you, My once you sunk into it, you'd be like, okay, let's play around with the business. Mm-hmm. But I think that immediately you would wig out. My you grandmother said, out. my I don't know. I'd be so mad. Be mad that I say this. She's probably not going to hear this, I guess, right? Mm, probably not. My she grandma t- said that she would go into seclusion. That she would <laughs> seclude deep. herself. She'd start and a that, compound. I was like, wow, you know what? I might actually seclude myself for a little bit, too. Like, I might want to I'd be like super mad. I'd just be like, I already got used to this whole other like set of plumbing. Being a woman, right? I've been like develop my entire identity around. What would that. you do if you woke up as a woman tomorrow? What would I do? Or First thing. right now? What if you closed your eyes right now? And <laughs> just took a nap, and then you woke up, and you were and a then, woman. Uh, it depends on if I was a hot woman. Ow! But the thing is, if it were you, would you honestly, like, say, like, oh, I'm not hot. I'm a, like, I'm I'm probably a four. You know, if you looked at yourself, you'd be like, no, I'm a good. In the beginning, if you were a four, you'd know it. You, then you, you would it, sink into being like pushing yourself to a six, but if you were a four and you and just you looked, got changed to one, yeah. you'd because be like, you oh. would have just like if I woke up a man, sex. I would be like, oh, I'm an ugly man. Right. Mm-hmm. You would know immediately, but then you'd probably like you learn. You wouldn't be ugly. You'd man. learn denial. You'd be a really good looking man. Well, that's so what, your first but, thing is you'd you go to know. a mirror. <laughs> yeah, and then what? what and then you go, mm. What if you were hot? Yeah, so now it's a choose your own adventure. Let's go with the hot way first. I mean, I, I feel, you know, you know, the risk of sounding completely sexist. I do think there are very different avenues open to women based much more, I think, hinges on looks for women than men. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. you know, I, I don't think it's being sexist to... To, to acknowledge state, that. Yeah. Absolutely not. Absolutely. I mean, there's many more uber successful ugly men, you know, yeah. than I, yeah. I, I think a lot of women... Um, like Donald Trump. That is the ugliest man in the world. I know you're listening, Donald Trump. Yeah, I know. Daily subscriber. (laughs) You know, so, I I mean, I think 
there's a, a lot of a lot I, quite personally I think there's nothing more powerful in in this business than a really attractive woman who knows how to use it and and that might be sexist also that she has to use it that way but in truth a really attractive woman who's willing to play on her sexuality to get what she wants I think that's a very powerful problems with that though like well, just last night i got g-chatted by this guy that i know that knows that i'm an artist and that he's you know an an, an artist guy too and he um the only way in which he, he keeps insisting on interacting me in this way that's like come have sex with me <laughs> and i'm like in an no, artistic way i'm never gonna have sex with you no. why don't you talk to me about my art yeah why don't you fuck me well yeah no i mean but the thing oh, is I don't it's mean like it's you a have common to be a, i don't mean you have to be a whore no but, but, but it's but, a but, common but, bit but, of like sexism that you yeah. bring up because so many of the people that i you know interviewed would have one of the one of the questions how do women have power uh-huh. men and women and transgendered people and whoever were like you know well women have that sexuality thing or, you know, the power of that, meaning that, like, or in certain ways that her power hinges on that. What about ways. the woman who doesn't have that? Exactly. Or what does she have never then? taught how to do it. Yeah. I feel like that's something that should be started. That's what they need to teach in health class. How to use your sexuality as power. Yeah, but they need to teach <laughs> it to the if, men if and the, the women, that we, too, so that, that we can, we like... have to use, then, But, yeah. I mean, sexuality is power, like, regardless. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. it is power in the way that we all interact in the world. So I think that they should teach that to Everybody, Harness you know what I mean? It. Men, women, whoever, use your sexuality as power, and that way, everybody, like the playing field is open, you know, mm-hmm. for how that can except be used. for people who are really ugly. But you know, you no, know, but happen. they have sexuality and they have power too. You know what I mean? Like I definitely had issues about my body and myself growing up, and thought I was way uglier than I was. And like, Me too. you know what I mean? And a, I'm not, but b, also there is, you know, like there are people out there who want you. You know, I mean, that people want to like. You know, bash together with Desiree each other. just made a <laughs> butterfly hand fucking gesture. You know what I mean? So, like, it there's power beautiful. in it. If well, you're hot, if you're not hot, if you're big, if you're small, if you're this, if you're that. Th- that's a really interesting point. I think, you know, I, I think so much of maybe what's negative is that people are taught that it, you know, that, that women, especially women, even probably more than men, get this conflicting view that it's bad to use. Yeah. You know, yeah. You know but it, it doesn't have to be a good thing. I mean, the power to flirt, the power to just interact with yeah. people to get what you want is, yeah. like it's, said, it's, a large it's part. In, yeah, it's in some way a diplomacy. Well, it becomes <laughs> the thing where it's like, let's all just pray that your want is pure, right? That your want is good. Because this yeah. all sounds good when you say, let's use our sexuality to get what we want. The only way that doesn't work out is if you're like Dark Heart from the Care Bears movie. What you <laughs> actually want is like to take over the world, oh my you know? God. I am and then Dark Heart from weird. the Care Bears movie. Dark Heart, dark heart from the Care Bears the movie is hot. in my mind showing me his the penis time. right now. <laughs> he was the first like cartoon crush I had. Really? Yes. Yeah. He, he wore loved like, bad boys even from the beginning. Yeah. Oh. Wait, he wore yeah. sweatpants. He had a jumpsuit. So and he red was from hair. New Jersey. Totally. He was hot. <laughs> was I liked April. Except for the one he got Ninja good Turtles. in the end. <laughs> well, I wish we could talk for a lot longer. Yeah, I, yeah. I got a jam-packed episode I know this week, and, and I'm sure now I'm going to be getting everybody telling me I'm a sexist. So. No! <laughs> So, um, you are sexist in as much as we're we all sexist. We all are, too. I mean, we live in a sexist world, so everybody is That's a is lot one. of what our show is about, is the hypocrisy within it all, too. Is I, that like, I think there's a difference between being sexist or racist and acknowledging some inherent 
cultural differences between yeah. people. And being aware, uh, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. you're not going to, like, and, change a sexist, world. And understanding world, that know? an assumption or a stereotype doesn't mean everybody fits the stereotype, but that it's convenient thing sometimes for people to under... Well, it became a stereotype somehow. Yeah. 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 Um, and so, anyway, the Soup Show uh, starts uh, March 4th, and it runs the 27th. That's yeah. right. And uh, is there a website people can go to to get yes, more? Yes, you can um, check out more information at www.here.org backslash soup show. Or you can go to the New York Neo-Futurist website, which is www.nynf.org. But the show is at Here Arts Center, so if you go there, 7 o'clock, pretty much any day in March, you're going to find us there. Yeah. All right. Well, Desiree Birch, Kara Francis, and Erica Livingston, thanks so much for Thank such an uh, intriguing conversation. Thank and best of luck in the show. It thanks so much. Thanks Thank for having you. us. On the Boards. The Hidden Skies, a new musical based on the short story by famed science fiction writer Ursula Le Guin, which is currently playing at the Prospect Theatre Company through February 28th. A story about uh, awakening awakening and uh, a search for intellectual enlightenment in a dystopian future. Uh, We've got the book writer Kate Chisholm and the composer lyricist Peter Foley here with us to talk about the show and uh, the inspiration behind it and whatnot. How are you guys doing? Good. Happy to be with you. (laughs) All right. So now that I'm angled in in the short summary of the of the show, why why don't you go ahead and tell us what the hidden sky is about? Well, you need a little context because it is set in a um, a society of the future that is post apocalypse. Um, We never say exactly what that apocalypse was, um, but it's some kind of catastrophic event caused by the misuse (laughs) of technology, and the little remnant of, of humanity that survived uh, collectively decided to um, reject technology and mathematics and science, and now there's a, a group of ruling... Sarah Palin at the head of this? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's well, funny how the overtones have, uh, have yes. shifted in the current climate. Yeah, yeah, I know. Um, it, is, uh, it is timely. Um, and uh, so these ruling priests have forbidden people from um, learning and striving, and they, they just want to keep people safe. Um, I'd say the interesting twist is that they're forbidden, but they're, they are also complicit. I mean, there's a strong uh, voluntary component to this kind of Luddite existence that they're, that they're living because they, don't, they actually would prefer not to repeat the apocalypse. So they've kind of bought into this idea that, hey, if we just don't, you know, invent things and don't think too much and don't really look for much beyond what we have – will be safe and and it'll all work out. Yes, and and the um the sun which is now hidden and worshiped by these people will return if they mm, are right. if they are good people and do these things. But of course it's human nature to want to know and to strive and to um understand the world around us. So the story centers around a young woman named Ganil who um is really hungry for knowledge and she she meets um another a man named Mead her co-worker who uh is has come to this town because there is a group of underground scientists that he heard about 
So he, he, over the course of time, recruits her to join this group. And, um, and everyone is thrilled because it turns out that she's a naturally born genius at mathematics, which is just what they need to prove all their theories about the universe. And they're kind of rediscovering things that Galileo was working on. And um, then what happens? <laughs> well, uh, she dives in and, and uh, starts to learn and to help them with their work. But uh, her own journey sort of takes her in a different direction, um, which I think comes as a, as a surprise. I hope it does. Um, and she, she winds up in a very different place from some of these scientists that she's been working with. And that's, that's so the story uh, throughout the musical is of her awakening and unfolding to sort of what her life's purpose is. And at, at the end, she has to make a pretty big uh, leap into the unknown, really. That's, that's what she ends up embracing at the, at the end, is not exactly knowing what the next step is, but taking it anyway. Well, now, you brought, I know you brought a demo of a couple songs here with you, right? Yes, we did. You want to play the first one here at the moment? Sure. Kind of, it's right to... at the top of the show, um, and it, it sort of sets up one of the major musical sounds of the piece, which is a big choral um, Sound Prospect has uh, graciously given us 13 fantastic singer-actors uh, to sing some of this choral music. And How many non-fantastic singer-actors? Uh, uh, we have you? zero, zero <laughs> non-fantastic singer-actors. We put them through the most grueling callback process, really, where they, uh, you know, they have their initial audition and then they come in and they basically have to sing choral music from the show for... I don't know, two hours or something, because it's a lot of music to learn in a really short period of time. And it's, you know, we have to just make sure that everyone is a crackerjack musician and can hold their part, and, and they all can. So it yeah, worked. They had to, it was sort of like the last man standing or something, last man and woman standing. It was, you know, the attrition was, uh, was great. And um, these people just kept going, and they can all sing, and they can move, and they can act. And it's really, it's been incredible to watch them. So now you are going to not hear them sing because uh, this is a, an earlier demo with a different uh, group of folks. Um, but one of the things that w it, this piece of music sets up is um, this kind of post-apocalyptic uh, collision of musical styles, which kind of sounds like some medieval music crashing up against some other styles, which, which you'll see. And uh, as, in, as far as what's happening in the story is um, Ganil starts uh, the play at, as sort of a embracing the the system the the ruling order and becoming an important worker uh in in the town and so she she has to swear a sort of mumbo jumbo -y oath to keep everything secret about what she and her comrades are doing in this little factory where they make steam engines uh which are the most advanced piece of technology that this world has so it's kind of like you know the ultimate technical job that you could have is being one of these steam engine repair people and they you get sworn to secrecy like being in the NSA or something uh and this song is is the oath of secrecy that she takes all right let's take a listen postulant 
will you swear our oath with us? I will. Swear then, masters of the right.
so now this is based on a short story by Ursula Le Guin. Was it a process getting the rights to do this, or? Um, it was actually, it wasn't that hard. It was kind of a great process, actually. Um, I wrote her a letter and um, said, I'd like to do this. And she was kind of amenable to the idea right from, right from the get-go. I mean, she's a, you know, lovely and generous person from my my interactions with her, certainly, and she just had faith. And in fact, at one point, she wrote me a letter and said, you know, uh, listen, I have to tell you, when you first approached me, I, I really wasn't sure that the story um, had the makings of a theater piece, but sometimes you just have to, you know, believe in someone's belief in something. Uh, and occasionally you receive a reward like what you've done. And, you know, you know so she said, and I thank you for that. Um, so, you, did she come see the show? She has not seen it. <laughs> um, she lives in Oregon, and, uh, and she's in her 80s. Um, so she doesn't travel as much as, as she used to. Um, but she has listened to it, and she's read it. And at various times, I think at some point she may have even seen some video. I, I'm not... I'm not exactly sure, but she's been kept in the loop, and and she's been just nothing but supportive and enthusiastic. Couldn't ask for a better, um, you know, relationship. Uh, so I feel well, an very interesting grateful. thing to note too is that, um, you know, this 20-page short story—it's actually called *The Masters*, and we changed the title. But um, in this short story, Ganil is a male, and uh, the the her. The fiance is female, and her underground scientist teacher is male, and we switched all these genders. Um, I think without even we didn't really have to ask permission to do that. We just did it, and um, and it it made so much of the story really interesting. Um, and she has she loved that we changed the mathematician into a woman. <laughs> she wanted to say mathematics is the final frontier for women. Um, you know that it sort of it. It takes on a kind of I mean, it is feminist without being overtly that we didn't we didn't write it with that in mind, but it it's just it makes the journeys um, more interesting and there's a little more of a love triangle. Who cares about a male math nerd, huh? Yeah, <laughs> well, a dream, you know, you have dreamy tenor versus a like fiery alto. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it really, it really did make a difference. It was great that she supported us on, yeah. on that change because I mean that's a big deal and and. Yeah, I, I would have been. On, I would have been. Really and by the way, we're also sitting in Pittsburgh now. No. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Right. No, I, I would have been. You know, I would have been uh, sad if she had been unhappy about it. But fortunately, as I said, she's been. She's been really supportive. This was her first published um, science fiction story. Uh, she wrote it back in 1963. So um, I think you know she was. She was pretty willing to just let us have at it, <laughs> which was which was nice. And I hope that we've hopefully we've repaid that trust by by making something that she is proud of. Now, how did the process go of adapting? Were you both involved from the very beginning, or or mm. you know, Peter, you said you wrote the letter, or or had you approached a few book writers? Or 
How how is your? <laughs> <laughs> well, we are married. Okay. <laughs> so um, so even though I wasn't officially involved, uh, evolved, so involved. under the table, you you did approach other people, right? You, you can tell me. <laughs> Actually, he started, he started working on it on his own. I did, yeah. And but because that we was a mistake. Talk about everything. <laughs> uh, you know, we were just he was running ideas by me and. Showed, first showed me the story, and I thought it was a fantastic story. I fell in love with it right away. And he, Peter did a, just really a few months of work on it. Um, he went up to the O'Neill Conference and, and some other things. And, um, and we just were talking about it all the time. And finally, we just we, he said, well, why don't you just write it with me? <laughs> so uh, we've done a that. A very wise move. It was very easy to uh, you know, collaborate with the person that you're living with because you don't have to set up meetings and you can, you know. You talk about it during dinner. Yeah, or yeah, but where, where are the boundaries? The <laughs> yeah, <right. laughs> yeah, well, that's you do have to make some boundaries. Yeah. But, but, but it's anyway, been a pleasure. Yeah, it really has. And I mean, and I, I felt like it, it's um, the aesthetic of the piece is a little unusual and the subject matter is quite unusual. And there were just a lot of a lot of potential difficulties about bringing in some random person. And I just feel very fortunate that Kate and I do tend to share the same aesthetic and we've seen all the same shows because we went together usually, <laughs> you know. And um, I'd say we've we've agreed on almost 95, maybe even more, you know, 95% of the stuff that that we've had to decide on the show has not been, there's never been this big, like, digging in your heels, like, I can't believe you want to do that kind of idea. I mean, kind of moment. Um, there's really just been a lot of of um, agreeing about what we need to do and then trying to figure out together how the hell we're going to do it. All right. Well, on that note, maybe we should take a listen to another song from the Sure. Show. Uh, this song is also um, from the top of the show. It's called Wheel in the Engine. Um, it's sung by the amazing uh, Mariah Grandy, um, who you'll hear. And um, the character she's playing is Ganil, who has sort of emerged from the song that you previously heard, The Oath, uh, into a celebration that they're all throwing for her now that they've gotten the mumbo-jumbo out of the way. And she kind of takes stock of this big party that's going on and steps out of it and sings this kind of reflective song of watching herself at this party and having arrived at this pinnacle of her career. Um, and so it's the first time we really hear from her. It, it, it's the first time we actually hear from her. First thing she says. So. <laughs> All right, let's take a listen. I was taught mechanical arts. I was tested and I passed. I must be a master then At last it starts I am a wheel in the engine After years with no of the 
So this is currently being presented at the Prospect Theatre Company, um, or by the Prospect Theatre Company. Uh, where can people see the show? It's at the West End Theatre, which is on 86th and West End in the Church of St. Paul and St. Andrew, I believe it's called. Um, and it's a very interesting space <laughs> for this show. It's, uh, it's not The space itself is not actually formerly the church, but it's uh, it has a three-story domed ceiling, and um, it, it just, it, it's kind of perfect for this show, this story of searching for the hidden sky and looking upward. <laughs> In a big dome. Yeah. 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 Um, and I would say that um, we should plug the website if you want to buy tickets. Um, you can go to thehiddensky.com and um, click right on through to the ticket website. Come on down or up. <laughs> so what was the process? How did this come to uh, Prospect's attention? Ah, um, well, that's interesting, actually. Um, we had written the show uh, some years ago in an earlier sort of form, and um, it had a production uh, at the Prince Music Theater in Philadelphia, and then uh, we were just kind of sitting on it and were unsure about what to do with it next, and a friend of mine, the actor, singer, Manuel Falciano, was just a huge fan of the score, and he became sort of adamant about the need to get it out into the world. You know, he was, it is not just going to sit in your drawer, man. You know? um, and at the time, 
he um, had a lot of heat uh, in his career because he was uh, Tony nominated for playing Tobias in the recent revival of Sweeney Todd and people were asking him to do all kinds of things and concerts and and he said, well, I want to do a concert of The Hidden Sky. So we put together a short version of about, I guess about a third of the show that we sort of did in concert format and we did it at um, Ars Nova and then we did it at Joe's Pub. And Cara Reichel from Prospect came to the Joe's Pub concert and she just kind of got on board. It was totally undramatic. She was, you know, like, hey, let's just, let's do it. <laughs> <laughs> so we love her. We love her for that. And that's, uh, that's how it came to be. We um, did a workshop with Prospect where Cara gave us some great help, uh, dramaturgical advice and, you know, worked on the, on the piece. And, and then uh, a year later, here we are. All right. And again, people can have till uh, February 28th to catch it. They can go to thehiddensky.com for more information. And uh, Kate Chisholm and Peter Foley, thanks so much for coming down and sharing the music and talking about the show. And best of luck with the run. Thank you. Thank Michael. you. Pleasure. On the boards. The Queen's Company is known for their all-female casting, casting women in male roles, uh, like it's a twist and reverse on the Elizabethan era. And uh, they are back. They had them on the show about a year ago, and they're back with The Wonder, which is playing from February 26th through March 14th. We have got uh, the artistic director and director of The Wonder, Rebecca Patterson, along with actors Virginia Bieta and Abby Hawk. How are you guys doing? Doing great. Doing great. Uh, Bieta, you're like really happy that I got that last name right. <laughs> yes, I am. I, I wrote it down. My listeners know I'm horrible with names. <laughs> Not today. Because that's B-A-E-T-A, right? Yes. For people who are like Googling you after this. Yes. <laughs> so, well, why don't you all take a second and introduce yourself so people can connect your voice to your name here quick. Okay. Well, I'm Rebecca. <laughs> I'm right. Abby. And I'm Virginia. All right. So, Queen's Company and The Wonder. Um, I guess to start it off, maybe tell us a little bit about the, the play itself, The Wonder. Well, The play, the Wonder is was written in the 1700s by Susanna Santlaver. And at the time, it was the biggest hit for 100 years. It just ruled the stages of England and the colonies and outsold all the other plays of the Restoration that we're more familiar with from our... Um, and like Avatar, it was in 3D. Exactly! <laughs> I mean, Avatar, it was bigger than Cats. It was... <laughs> so, um, yeah, so it was, a, it was a huge success for 100 years and then disappeared. Um, my reasoning for it is primarily it's, it's extremely... Um, it's a little raunchy, and it's a big old romp, um, and also has very strong female leads. And I think that what happened was the Victorian era came along and they didn't really want sex and strong women on stage, so that caused it to disappear. It's this lovely play. Um, it's a comedy of intrigue, restoration comedy of intrigue, that uh, is about a young woman who is escaping um, an arranged marriage, and she turns to her friend, uh, Violante, who's played by Abby Hawk, uh, to find a way out of this mess and be able to pursue what her desires are, what her goals are. Um, and this cascade of um, people hiding behind doors and uh, misadventure happens as these two women try to pursue their desires and pr pursue the men that they want to marry. So, yeah, that's, that's the wonder in a, in a nutshell. Um, and maybe the two of you can go into a little bit more depth on each of your characters here. 
<laughs> well, Nobody wants to come. <laughs> I'll start. Um, <laughs> Donna Violante is, uh, well, the play is The Wonder, and she's the secret keeper. Um, the full title of the play is The Wonder, A Woman Keeps a Secret, which I thought was funny. Um, and Sounds like a Lifetime channel title. Right? <laughs> kind of. Maybe of the era. And, uh, yeah, I was just struck when I first read the play about her, you know, with her strength and what a strong character she was to be written at that time. And, um, you know, you've got this romance between these two characters, but also a very strong friendship that's happening. And she is, um, she's just put into the situation very quickly and has to decide how, um, how is she going to protect her friend and keep her love? And yet, what is she willing to risk to keep this friendship? What is the importance of this female bond between the two of them? Um, so yeah, that's Violante. Mm-hmm. And then um, I'm playing Don Felix, who is the um, the lover of Violante, and um, and part of the uh, part of the developing um, difficulty, I would say, um, the the conflict of the play is that uh, the secret that Violante is trying to keep um, seems a lot to Don Felix like she's hiding another lover. Um, so there's uh, there are so many different levels of jealousy, um, jealousy, confusion, uh, passion. Um, but playing a male character who has who goes through so many different, such a roller coaster of emotions while trying to decide what to do about the love of his life, um, who may or may not be faithful. Um, so it's a it's also a really great character at a fun time. All right, so the Queen's Company. All, all women, women playing male, men's mm-hmm. roles. Uh, I'm sure I could come up with some doozy tears, but I'm going to ask you, when you talk to your friends about the company and stuff, what are the stupidest questions you get? Huh. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm sure I could ask some really stupid ones myself, but I, I'm sure you've gotten some great stupid ones, so maybe. Do you kiss? <laughs> <laughs> well, do you? Yeah. <laughs> yes, we do. I'm going to get some people to come to the show with that one. That's right. <laughs> We do, we do, we do. <laughs> no, nothing else? No, nothing other? Not that I can think of. Usually, stupid questions. I know that I've gotten some stupid questions, but they usually just kind of flow away. <laughs> <laughs> well, so you could throw a couple my way and see. If <laughs> well, I think one stupid question that comes up a lot is, um, well, you know, is, so is, is everybody gay? Because if you're kissing on stage and you're all, you know, women are playing men, that's so queer. Um, and I think one of the best parts of it is that it's not necessarily, that's that's not a factor at all. You know, the, the actual sexual orientation of the people who see our shows and enjoy them, but also the actors that are on stage. Do you poll the people who come see your shows? <laughs> no, because, it's a, because it becomes, it's a total non-issue. It's about, it's about the play and it's about the characters and it's about the story. Um, so that that's what's going on there. Mm-hmm. I'd say that's the only dumb question that I get. As actors, do you feel a difference working in an all-female company versus a mixed company? Is there, are there any differences of the amount of freedom you feel on stage or, or not or in rehearsals? Well, this is my first time working with the Queen's Company, and um, I have to say I was really surprised that I wasn't that thrown. I was sort of expecting to be a little confused or, you know, I didn't, I didn't quite know what to expect, to be honest. And... Uh, there is more freedom, I think, because we're taking 
you're taking away the gender construct, even though, you know, this is a big talking point when you talk about the company, it's an all-female company. Like Rebecca said, that just kind of goes away. And when you remove that gender construct and you're just looking at the humanity of the characters and these people that are interacting, it's, you know, I'm looking at Virginia and I'm just, I'm a person seeing a person. You know, it's not about playing a female or playing a male. It's just the interaction that's happening between these two characters. So for me, I find it really freeing and it creates a really comfortable, fun rehearsal atmosphere, um, especially sometimes when somebody does something that's just so manly, it's hilarious. You know? <laughs> it's great. So, Rebecca, what was your inspiration? You're, you're the artistic director. You're also the yes. founder of the, yeah. the Queen's Company? Yeah, founding artistic director. What was your reasoning behind getting this group together and, and, and this um, artistic vision? Um, well, I had found through an earlier um, exploration that doing all-female casting in classical plays was a really strong way to do these plays. It really released them and opened them up. Um, partially for the reasons that Abby spoke about, is it removes some of our contemporary gender baggage around them. And also, so simply the fact that um, Restoration male characters and Restoration men are very different from contemporary men. These are... They're very feminine. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. And, and people say, like, well, what does that mean? Because what it is is that these are, these are guys who are pursuing what they want, but they're feeling deeply and they're talking about what they're feeling. You know, our contemporary... Um, we don't talk about our feelings. Exactly. Contemporary comedies <laughs> built around the fact that men don't talk about their feelings. So I think that the restoration, a restoration man is actually closer to contemporary women. So what I found is that when I cast a woman in these roles, they were actually embodying and uh, performing the roles more effectively than what a lot of contemporary men, where they could go, simply because the fact is, restoration men, they feel deeply, they talk about, they process, they talk about what they're feeling. So um, that was my impulse, was I, f is, I felt it was the best way to do these plays. So that's why I did it. So how many? How long has this been going on now? The, I know we talked last year, but I'm... I'm yeah, no, this is our 12th production. We started in 2000, which I guess means nine years. We're not 10 years old yet. Um, so, yeah, since 2000, we've done 12 productions and a, few, a handful of workshops. So, um, and it's been, you know, I've continued with it because it's been um, a great success with with audiences, artists, and with the critics. Yeah, say, what, what has the critical reaction? Has there been any critics who just don't get it? Very few. I it's mean, your chance to strike back at them. <laughs> no, I refuse to be bitter. <laughs> no, the bulk of it is that basically nine out of the ten reviews that we get are extremely positive and very enthusiastic. Um, you know, there's one or two that are like, I just don't get it. But I assume that, that, you know, ultimately I don't think I'm doing good art if I don't piss somebody off. Um, so, yeah, the, the critical success has been extremely, um, extremely positive, and that's actually what has driven us forward. When, we first, when I first did this, I thought, oh, I'll just do a couple plays. And, uh, How important is the critical success to your actual ticket sales? And um, in, in this diminishing, everybody talks about the diminishment of you know, traditional media and, and such. A little bit, because actually one of the things is we have an extremely loyal audience following, so, and we do limited runs in smaller houses, so we actually sell pretty well before the reviews hit. Um, but when a good review hits, like for instance, when we got the New York Times with Taming the Shrew, you know, we sold out. Um, so definitely in this diminishing return, in terms of outreaching to people who don't know about the work, critical, the critical response is definitely impacts it. But in terms of filling our houses, 
we have really good word of mouth, so that tends to do its own business for us. So what have been your uh, favorite things along the process of rehearsing? Any, anything notable at, at this point? Gosh. Tweet, tweet, tweet. Oh. I know, lots of things. <laughs> I know, I know it's, I, I mean, there's, there's something about getting into the rehearsal room with a Queen's Company production where it's, um, it's magic, really. There's, um, the inhibitions are out the window pretty much from the first moment. It's, it's something that I don't experience always in rehearsal processes. You know, it's, Rebecca creates an environment in the room that is so safe. Um, and brings together actors that are of such wonderfully high caliber that you step onto the stage and one of the first things that you're doing is magic. It's hard to pull out the moment that is, you know, that special thing that I want to talk about specifically. <laughs> now, you mentioned that this is one of the, you know, first women playwrights. Mm -hmm. And the sad, unfortunate truth is that in terms of people getting produced, women playwrights are still very much in the minority even today. Yes, very true. And do, do you think that has an impact on how this play has disappeared, so to speak, in, in the classical canon? And and what do you think are the... the and I know Virginia, right, you mentioned that you are also a playwright yourself. What are the struggles? Why is it harder for a woman? Or is it harder for a woman? I mean, is it a, is it a matter of numbers? Are there fewer women playwrights? Oh, or are there... Mm. Or is it just fewer women playwrights getting produced? Fewer women playwrights getting produced. There's a lot of women playwrights out there writing. And they're writing good plays. And I think part of the problem is that, you know, I have heard this, and I won't name any names, uh, male artistic directors who say, I just don't get the plays. You know, it's the same way as it, because it's a, it's a perspective on the world that doesn't fit into their world perspective. So they don't, it doesn't resonate with them personally. So often there's not a choice. So I think it really has to get down to just they have to produce more women plays. There's a push right now. Okay, uh, actually, you know, I, I, this is ringing deja vu. I think we actually talked about this our last time, but <laughs> I, I, I think I have an angle that we didn't quite talk about. Rather than relying on the top down and relying on those gatekeepers, you know, now in the modern age, internet and stuff, the, the barriers are coming down. Mm -hmm. What advice might you have rather than relying on these male artistic directors to somehow, you know, come through and see the light and the vision. What advice might you give female playwrights for how they can empower themselves and 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 get beyond that? Well, it's barrier? tough because you know the Queen's Company self produces. We we produce these productions, so I understand the huge barriers about saying you know build it and they will come in terms of raising the money, putting the production up. That we really have to. Um, open these gatekeepers. I think the big thing is simply to keep writing. Don't lose your spirit. Um, do what you can in terms of getting the work out there and getting it seen and getting people excited about it and getting the critics and the audiences excited about it. Because I think that it is the audiences that put pressure on more traditional visions um, that is sometimes coming from the producers in the American theater world when audiences say, hey, we like this. Um, so that would be my advice, is whether just get it out there whatever way and um, really champion your work. That's the big thing, is that you can lose, you can get a little bitter, lose uh, your enthusiasm, but really champion your work. Yeah. All right, so The Wonder is uh, playing from February 26th through the 14th, and where is this playing? 
At Theater Row, the Kirk Theater at 410 West 42nd Street. So that's like right in the Broadway neighborhood here. Yep, right around the corner from here. <laughs> and is there a website people can go to for more information? Yep, they should log on to www.queenscompany.org for more information. All right. Well, I thank you so much for stopping down to chat about the thing. Uh, Virginia B. Ada, Abby Hawk, Rebecca Patterson, thank you so much, and best of luck as uh, you get ready to mount the wonder. Great. Thank, thank you very you. much. Thank you. On the positive side. Hey, this is Marty Cooper, and uh, after all this time, uh, surprisingly, I'm still on the positive side. Um, still doing my work with in the theater, ushering, uh, enjoying myself in my retirement. Uh, today, I shouldn't call it on the positive side. I should call it unabashed and shameless. Uh, I've been working at a show pretty steadily uh, called Memphis. And uh, if, anybody, if anybody reads uh, Broadway.com, uh, you know, one of the forums on there is started by my friend Wayman Wong, uh, and it's shameless and unabashed uh, love thread for Memphis the Musical. I've been watching the show for a little over a hundred times, uh, and I, I, I still love it. Uh, I love the leads, uh, Chad Kimball, Montego Glover, uh, the, the choreography, uh, Sergio Trio, is some of the best you'll ever see on Broadway. Um, although this year it's, there's going to be a lot of competition. Uh, in fact, that's my next that's my next session here. I'm going to talk about just how crowded the Tony Award nominations are going to be this year. Uh, and we were surprised because nothing much was happening at the beginning of the year. But in any case, uh, finally we have a musical that has no uh, source material that anybody knows about. Uh, there isn't one hit song from any place else that anybody knows about. Um, the story is unknown to people, and it's making a life for itself. Uh, I know this weekend most shows were sold out, but uh, some weren't. Uh, but Memphis was, and and people every night are standing and stomping and clapping and just having a good old time. I, I, I love the music. Uh, there's a wonderful song that Monteo Glover does called uh, Lo Love Will Stand Where, Where All Else Falls. And uh, if anybody thinks about it, it makes a wonderful wedding song. Um, and it's similar in structure uh, to Aretha Franklin's Natural Woman, as it is a in waltz time. In fact, it might be a little advanced for the 50s, but we don't worry about that. It just sounds great on stage. Uh, even, even the co-stars are wonderful. Uh, James Inglehart and, and J, J, J. Bernard Calloway, who you heard on this program a while back. Uh, they are great. Um, I just love the show. Uh, the end of towards the end of Act One, there's a a number called uh, there's a number called Radio, and uh, the the choreography is just athletic and and wonderful to watch. And 
every time I, I'm standing down there watching it, I'm just, I'm just glowing, enjoying, enjoying it. Now, anybody who wants a CD, uh, you could pick it up at the theater uh, bef before the show, after the show, at intermission time. Uh, right now, it's only available at the theater. Uh, so if you're interested in having it, you can pick it up there. Uh, or if you see the show, make sure to get it because it's not on iTunes uh, and it's not available anyplace else. But in any case, uh, try going to the Schubert box office or actually right now they have a lot of specials going on, a lot of coupons. Uh, that's another subject I'm going to talk about eventually, uh, the subject of shows discounting. Most shows in this day and age have to. Because uh, unless you're putting uh, Catherine Zeta-Jones on stage, uh, you're not going to sell a full-price ticket. People just don't have the money. So uh, most shows are discounting. Uh, but that's okay. Uh, if you can find a discount for Memphis, make sure to pull it out off the Internet, wherever, uh, and, and go see it. You will have a ball. In any case... Uh, if you have any opinion about what I've had to say, uh, you can email me directly at broadwaymarty at AOL.com. And uh, um, I'm, I will be back in the next session. Uh, and as I said, I will talk about the crowds uh, in, at the Tony nominations. Uh, I thought about it the other day, and it's just amazing how many people could possibly be nominated this year. Um, Unfortunately, we were supposed to have a year of uh, a year of revivals, but uh, two of the revivals already have come and gone, and I'm not sure how interested people will be by the time the Tony Awards come around. In any case, uh, this is Marty Cooper once again, and and still on the positive side. Sweet charity. Daniel Horrigan is an actor and performance artist that is living with HIV, and he has decided to turn his experiences into a one-man project called My AIDS, which he is doing for various charities and in association with various LBGT groups around the city. And uh, he is here to talk about the show, which is running now through March 1st, as well as some upcoming projects with his company, uh, At Hand Theater Company. So, Dan Horrigan, how are you doing? I'm pretty good. How are you? <laughs> Thanks good. for having me. Yeah, braving another blizzard here to come. Yes, I'm from Buffalo. So uh, are they tossing is... around the word blizzard yet? I, I feel that they tossed that around a little bit too frivolously here in New York. I, I just got. <laughs> I didn't even know it was coming because I've been in shows all weekend. So I, I don't even. I have no idea. There's like the Olympics are might be on or something. So weather, things like this, it's really out of my realm of experience right now. <laughs> Well, I guess to start things off, uh, tell us a little bit about your show, My AIDS. So the show is an autobiographical uh, one-man show, and it's about being HIV positive, and it's also about um, sort of chasing down um, this ideal of what being an adult is. Like, when are you, when, when is everything in order? You know, when, when do you feel like you're an adult and have it all together? And do you ever feel that way? Um, and then becoming HIV positive sort of starts to play into all of that. And it goes from there. And it was just, um, 
I always like to put forward that I don't. I don't think of myself as an actor or a writer. You know, I mean, I went to like college for theater and I did acting and stuff. Um, and I usually am directing plays, and this just came about really sort of organically and naturally. And suddenly now I find myself performing this whole show about my AIDS to total strangers. <laughs> <laughs> so what is it? What is that like burying your soul and talking about uh, your HIV status in in, in public? It's, I mean, even right now, like, I say it, and there's still a little, like, you know, I kind of see you here, and I say it, and I'm just like, you know, I get a little weirded out about it. So you do it casually, and then you do it in front of a whole audience of people, and, you know, it is cathartic, but at the same time, it's really freaking hard. It's it's hard. It's difficult to do. And I, also, I think everyone's coming from so many different backgrounds and experiences. You know, sometimes I feel like you have people there that, you know, are ready to laugh about AIDS. You know, like, I, you know, it might be HIV positive or, you know, I've been around it enough and know that, you know, feel that there's... um a need for the humor, and then there are other people, I think, who, you know, are still so frightened of it and scared of it that they're kind of precious about it, and, you know... This is a comedy, a, overall. Yeah, it's right? a comedy. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, I'm, you know, I mean, it's not a comedy that I am positive, <laughs> but I can be comedic about it. So, <laughs> you know, you get all, you get a lot of different reactions, but I'm just always hoping that people, uh, I can let people know that it's okay like it's okay we can laugh here this is this is what we have to do so hopefully that's working out <laughs> and i think it is so far so how long have you been hiv positive um uh, over three and a half go probably about four years in the when summer comes so what was the re what, what how was it finding out i mean um it sucked. <laughs> You're not saying it was fantastic, like winning the lottery? <laughs> um, it, you know, it was... I don't want to give too much away because you have to come see the show. You do get a bit of the, you know, the finding out part of the story. But um, it, was, it was really hard. And for the first couple of years, I think I, you know, I was dealing with it. But I, I, I certainly wasn't public about it in any way. Um, I would... I had a very core group of friends who were supportive, and I would talk to them. You know, I wasn't uh, – it was everything that was leading up to the HIV that I learned. You, I can't keep everything to myself. So then when that happened, I was like, all right, I am going to start talking to people about what I'm thinking and feeling and what's going on in my life. Because um, not doing that is, I feel like, what got – got me in trouble. So I did have a core group of friends that I was sharing things with. And then, you know, we're very, we're, it's a very irreverent group. Most of them are theater people. And, you know, there were always AIDS jokes flying around, which I found comforting. And so then after so long, I just kind of started writing about it and then started reading it for those friends and then started reading it, expanding the groups that I was reading it for. And now I, you know, find myself at the Glorious 30th Street Theater, performing it. Now, you know when you know when it you know, arrived in the 80s and then through the 90s, it seems like you know AIDS awareness and AIDS you know benefits and education were like you know massive and, and unavoidable. Mm -hmm. And 
at least in my experience, it seems like there's still a lot of like AIDS benefits, so to speak, but it seems to have glossed over the content of, uh, in terms of like, like I see, you know, equity fights AIDS, for instance, all the time. You see benefits, but it 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 doesn't seem like the education is as, <laughs> as strong anymore yeah. in the past decade. Am I am I off base on no, that? No, I don't. I, I I hadn't really thought about that, but I I think you're right. I think what these organizations do because they're benefits that are raising money. And you, you sort of want everyone to be donating and writing those checks while you're at Broadway Bears. And, you know, they might have, like, a couple moments of silence or something like that, but they don't, you know, you certainly don't get um, into the harder, tougher parts about it. Um, and I do think that the, my piece in particular is um, very generational. I think I think it's definitely... I'm I'm 31. I think it's definitely specific to, you know, guys from maybe a few years older than me um, and people, not just gay, gay guys or people with HIV, but people in general. Um, I think from a few years older than me and then younger, but particularly in terms of HIV, because it's a different it's a different um, problem, I think, that we have than the generations before us that it was a surprise attack. You know, like, we, 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 we know about HIV, mm -hmm. so it's, there's a, whole, there's a whole other set of issues there that I think my piece addresses um, directly. Because it's still around, you know, it's still around, and people are still testing positive, mm -hmm. and I, you know, I think I'm going to get on my soapbox for just a second, but I think you can do all the condom education in the world, but if you're a young man who's just moved to New York and you don't know that you're supposed to use a condom, you should probably not be given a Metro card. So <laughs> I feel like most people who come here do know this. So what is it that happened? That was the big question that I had to ask myself in creating the pieces. I knew these things. What is it that happened along the way that what happened to me mentally and emotionally that I made choices otherwise? Um, so the play explains. Did they a lot take of your that. metric card away? Not yet. Not yet. <laughs> I have. Um, I, I do the. It comes right out of my check, so I get one card a year. They can't. <laughs> <laughs> now you've been performing this, so that you this you've, you're in the middle of your run at the moment. Yeah. Have, have you seen? Is there any sort of typical audience for your show? I don't know yet. Um, the the it was really interesting because you know I'm I'm gay I don't know if that's news to you but um, oh god we can't we, we, <laughs> this is a theater program we can't have any gay people on here I'm gonna have to um, cut this interview <laughs> <laughs> okay you know that homophobic theater world um, so it it is like last night I think we had like the least number of gay people in the audience, which was interesting because some of the, a lot of the jokes, um, well, I don't think it's particularly a gay play. Um, it's just me. I, I can't say either. It's just my experience and I'm pretty gay. So, um, but so last night I think that like it was a little bit more of a timid crowd. Um, and, but they were very, very attentive. I don't know yet to answer your question. <laughs> Because we, we've had three, and, um, you know, it's it's sort of building. And it's also, I don't know yet, because I'm getting more comfortable as I do it. I feel, you know, the first night I enjoyed, but I definitely think there was first night jitters. And 
as I relax into it each night, it just becomes more conversational and loose and just more fun. So I think I'm having more Isn't fun. that how you got into this? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah. <laughs> now, each night is a benefit for a different organization. Is that, is that right? You want to tell us a little yeah, bit about your, some of your... We um, approached uh, as many LGBT organizations in the city that we could find and um, ask them. they have come up with a better acronym? That's just such a mouthful. LGBT. Yeah. Oh, some people. It sounds like some a people won't even stop at that. There's like <laughs> LGBTQH, LGBT XYZ. It's it's crazy. Um, yeah, but it's actually I think supposed to be LGBTQ, and then you know, if you drop the T, the trannies get up in arms, <laughs> and if you drop the Q, the well, there's questioning people. Um, so we've partnered with um, a bunch of organizations, including the Anti-Violence Project and the Hetrick Martin Institute, Broadway Cares, um, GMHC, who gets a shout out in the show because um, I went there when I was, uh, you know, when I tested positive and was beginning to deal with all that. Um, so these types of organizations, and we get them, we have them come and they uh get a little speech before the show and then hopefully I make everyone really excited and passionate and then they start dropping dollars in the bucket for for the organization. And yeah, and we get to have the organization promote us too, which is, you know, shameless, shameless self-promotion. I'll keep doing it. Tell me when. I'm there. Well, I know also just uh, since this is going to be, you know, up on, you know, the Internet for a long time, um, uh, At Hand Theatre Company is your company, and I understand you also mm-hmm. have a couple extra projects coming up in the future that maybe you might want to touch on briefly? Yes, At Hand Theatre Company, it's, um, it's a really cool company. We uh, produce mostly new work, and we are also a green theatre company. We try to um, keep things pretty green, and that's sort of just within our philosophy of how we approach stuff, but keeping it sort of... Um, Minimal and text-oriented. We have a benefit. Isn't green in theater anymore just saying, hey, we don't have to pay for programs? <laughs> you'd, I, I, I know. You'd think. You'd think. Well, for us, it's also about, well, we don't know how to build a set, so let's not do it and say we're green. But no, I mean, it, was, it did sort of come out of, we're an off-off the company. We're doing indie theater, and we're building these whole sets for three-week runs. And then throwing them in the garbage, and everyone's doing this, and it's just that's dumb, you know. It's for three weeks. There's a, there are other, there. Not to say you can't make design choices. There, there's we have designers and things like that, but um, so we're doing lots of cool things that are coming up in um, April. We have a benefit that we're doing. Um, it's called Broadway Recycled, and it's um, your favorite songs and stars, uh, reduced, reused, and recycled. And actually, the title is going to kind of change a little bit. We've decided to sort of make it a trunk show. So we're going to be getting some um, Broadway, I can't say who yet, but getting some Broadway performers um, with recent shows that um, may have closed or might still be open and singing the songs that were cut from the show that they really loved. Uh, so we'll be doing that. And then in May, we have um, an amazing play uh, by Anton Dudley called Letters to the End of the World, which also addresses AIDS, um, but I think on a much more universal and 
global level. And it's about a, a boy in New York who begins a correspondence with a woman who's writing articles about the AIDS crisis in Africa in the 90s in a fashion magazine. And it's about their correspondence, and it all just sort of opens up from there. Um, so those are the exciting things that we have coming up. All right. So now is there a website people can go to find out about my AIDS and all these other up-and-coming projects? Yes, there are two. There's um, athandtheater.com. Not .org, but at handtheater.com. And it's theater with an R-E, right? Yeah, but we've redirected it, so if you do the mm-hmm. E-R, you're fine. Um, so you can be British or not. Um, so it's at handtheater.com, or you can read my blog, which is kind of funny, um, at Dan Horrigan, that's D-A-N-H-O-R-R-I-G-A-N, dot blogspot.com. Or if you just Google my name, I'm sure it will come up. All right, so people can go there to find out the schedule of the remaining performances for my aides through yep. March 1st and about those upcoming projects. And Dan Horgan, thanks so much for stopping by, and good luck with your fundraising efforts and Thank your performances. You. Thank you. Thanks for having me. On the boards. I'm sure there are many theater professionals and aspiring professionals that can relate with the idea of feeling stuck in a dead-end job, and that is what the play Stuck deals with, which is being presented by Bulldog Theatrical uh, through February 21st at the uh, Theater Row. And we have got actresses Kate McCluggage. Hello. And Athena Maskey. That's right. I, did I pronounce them both right? Yeah. I forgot to double-check it before I went in, so that's <laughs> incredible. And now Marshall... Palette? Yeah. I pronounced everything correctly without... Yeah. And, uh, and you're very good. That introduction was wonderful. <laughs> <laughs> so you guys want to introduce yourselves quick so people can connect the name with the voice? Yeah, sure. I'm Kate McCluggage, and I play Margarita in Stuck. Uh, I'm Athena Mashi, and I play Lula in Stuck. I'm uh, Marshall Palette, and I'm the director of Stuck. But I'm bump. All right. <laughs> so we'll, first, to get things kicked off, what is Stuck about? Tell us about Stuck. Okay, uh, well, Stuck is a, uh, it's a revival of a play by um, a wonderful playwright named Jessica Goldberg. It was done about ten years ago, and uh, it, it's about, it's a character drama about these five people in this kind of nowhere USA town, and they um, have these dead-end jobs and kind of nothing to believe in, and they're searching for meaning in their lives. Um, and the two uh, main characters are these these two girls played by these wonderful actresses. Um, their characters are Margarita and Lula. And uh, uh, it's about them and what happens in their lives and, and uh, the desperation of trying to get out of this cycle that is never-ending. So <laughs> so any any of the three of you have any experiences? Do you relate with ever feeling like you've been in a dead-end job? <laughs> My, what? Go ahead. You, please. Well, I worked as a telemarketer my first summer out of grad school. Out of and grad it, school, it, that must have felt really good. Oh, yeah. It was like, great, I've spent all this money to get my MFA in acting, and now <laughs> I am selling you. It was weird, too, because it was for this publication company that did these really specific publications for, like, uh, CPA firms. It was so bizarre. And I was calling these people and and saying, you know, do you want to buy this $1,000 book that will tell you how to run your CPA firm better? And Did they? No. No. <laughs> no. Nobody wants... CPA firms don't even want that. Nobody right. wants that. So it was... Uh, luckily, I didn't have to do it for that long. I only did it for three months. And then I booked a, a real um, theater job. So... 
So I only had to do it for that long. My boss was cool. That was the one perk about it. He was a great guy, but the rest of it was like banging my head against a wall. Um, well, I have my own, uh, my own experiences. I guess one thing that probably, um, relates most, uh, to this piece is, uh, I worked as a waitress, uh, during summers and breaks in, in high school and college, um, at a, at a dining room at like a high end retirement home. So it's like so you brought not up the even, green jello? Right, exactly. Yeah. No, they love tomato aspic, which is like V8 flavored jello. Anyway, um so it's like not really a waitressing job. It's like a it's like a pretend waitressing job kind of. Um but the some of the people that I worked with there were um quite different than I was. I you know, I was pursuing an undergraduate degree in um and, you know, a very high achiever. But um, a lot of the people that worked there were not, you know, and they were mm-hmm. 19, 20 years old, uh, one or two kids, mm-hmm. the fathers in prison on jug- drug charges, mm-hmm. you know. Um, and um, it was really a big wake-up call for me. I had not had an opportunity to meet people like that very often in my life before that. Yeah. I mean, we're both pretty lucky in terms of sort of where we come from and the options that are have been available to us and and the I think one of the things that one of the themes in the play that I think is really interesting is the idea of imagination as a way of getting out of your situation and um and Athena's character Lula has or had at one point a certain amount of imagination in it and it sort of saved both of us in the play mm-hmm. and for a while, and then that imagination, as we got older, started to fade away, and we were just in reality, and 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 it becomes unbearable for the two, for the two characters. And yeah, I think that's really true. Um, you know, also dealing with sort of some of the problems that can be endemic in that sort of situation. Um, you know, sexual abuse, mm-hmm. and also just verbal abuse, um, people not believing in you, not believing that uh, you should aspire to anything better. Right. And so therefore you start to believe that about yourself as well. Yeah, I think that that can be really hurtful um, and really sort of cements that kind of, you know, not worthy of of wanting anything else. Mm-hmm. Which in this play then, that sort of... Uh, feeling of being stuck ends up snowballing to some pretty yeah. dramatic mm-hmm. and Mar- <laughs> well Marshall we didn't hear from you yet are you old yeah. enough to work yet <laughs> yeah, well, <laughs> <laughs> no, I, um, it's child labor him right? <laughs> for those who since it's radio and you can't see Marshall's a very youthful looking man yeah, I, I graduated from college this morning so luckily <laughs> um, you know I haven't I, I've been lucky enough that since I've been in the real world, I've been playing pretend the entire time, and so I haven't had a real job yet. Um, hopefully, I can keep doing this because it's fun. But yeah, I am 14 years old. So. Do you know how many people right now are wringing their hands, wanting to kill you? I know. I wring <laughs> my hands at myself, but it only has been two hours since I've been a person, so it's not you know, it's not that big a deal. <laughs> so, what was the impetus behind putting this play up? I mean, this isn't. An established company. This is kind of a one-off production you guys yeah. are putting up here. So, w- what brought this together? Well, you know, we think it's a it's a really beautiful play, and and, and Jessica Goldberg um, has a way with language that is it's 
she really uses the language. It's so much more than just words to convey plot or character. The, the language itself is, is an art. Um, and, and the play hasn't had a huge life. You know, it was off-Broadway ten years ago. It's had a few productions. And, um, you know, we, we found this play, and, and we think it's a little gem that hasn't been as recognized as we think it should be, and, and we wanted to give it life again. Uh, I'm actually talking a lot less uh, metaphorical, but much more quite literally, because I think it's always an important thing for you know talent to get out there and 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 do, and not just wait for something to happen. So, kind of literally, physically, nuts and bolts. How did you go about putting together this one-off? You know, how did this come together? How did it happen? Well, um, the script came to me somehow. Someone brought it to me. I was reading through scripts, and I liked it, and so uh, I went to a. Um, producer friend of mine, uh, Jack, and uh, he runs an uh, organization called Bulldog Theatrical, and we just decided to put it up. You know, we just did it. So uh, so did you guys just audition? I, I auditioned, yeah. <laughs> so, th- so this wasn't like a, a meeting. This was actually, so this initial thing is a producerial front for... Were you involved as a producer as well or just director? No, no, just a director. Well, that's nice. Good God. <laughs> money, money in my hands, I would just... You know, I would do something stupid with it. I put it into the stock market. Or something. <laughs> <laughs> is, is this your first time putting together, you know, a show like this with a? Uh, well, I directed a, uh, a Fringe show in um, let's see, August or September, whenever mm-hmm. the Fringe was, and and uh, I directed in school. But but since then, this is uh, yeah, I'm kind of new. Mm-hmm. And anything anything that you've learned that you'd like to impart to other people who might be jumping into similar ventures here? Oh golly. Um, I'll tell you what, if someone wants to talk to me, um, we'll hand out my phone number. <laughs> I'm not sure if there's anything over the air I want to impart, but you know, it's been it's been a wonderful it's been a wonderful experience. And the actors, I mean, you know, I, I said to them the first day of rehearsal, thank God the economic climate is such that we have so many wonderful out of work actors <laughs> that they will, you know, do our uh, our show in theater row. Um, which is a great place and, and but the whole the whole thing has been wonderful and uh I say anyone who, you know, wants to go do something has that initiative, you know, go and do it. I think I think that's I just want to say this about Marshall because he is very young and very new at this. But um, the thing that I really appreciate most about you, Marshall, is that uh, you have a lot of chutzpah. Mm. And I think that that's really what young directors should be should be really doing is making really bold choices, choosing to work on projects in really bold ways and. Um, you know, Marshall was talking about the the language, and the language is really kind of musical, and he, and Marshall has a very musical background, so he's really sort of made a very bold choice and brought a lot of musicality into the production, and I I think that that's really what I would say from the experience of being directed by him mm-hmm. that uh, that other young directors should learn from Marshall Palin. <laughs> is, is to make a big cho- choice and go with it. Sure. I think it's I think it's important. Thanks. I would just say hire good actors. That's that's my. <laughs> it worked out well for me. <laughs> now, Athena, I wanted to bring up something. You you have a your day job is a little atypical for most theater people. I would I would say that's current... true. Yeah. I um. Well, I I finished a master's in oral history about six months ago. Really. And, well, I guess it would be more like a year ago. Uh, and <laughs> so I was sort of out of work, and it was just the, the whole uh, job market was crumbling. And, and uh, I was looking for quite a while, and uh, a friend put me in touch with um, 
this uh, sort of Wall Street golden guy who has started a new firm, and they needed a lot of help hiring. Um, it's it's actually been really fun, both because I get to kind of exercise the math part of my brain, <laughs> and um, because you know I get to I get to speak to I get to interview new and interesting people every day. Uh, they've also been really wonderfully flexible with my schedule. Uh, you know, you're working. I mean, this is not connect. I mean, you know, when people work as a waiter in New York, I think all the restaurants know that yeah, they're going to be going out and auditioning. But when you're working for a Wall Street firm, do they understand? Well, you know, this I don't artistic know, side of you. I don't know that I <laughs> that I would I would uh, say that most most Wall Street firms would understand. But this particular firm has been lovely, and uh, and they they're very supportive. Um, you know, I worked as a waitress for a while, too, and I found that um, the hours were so long, I wasn't getting home until, you know, 2 or 4 in the morning, and uh, I was just so exhausted that I had very little energy to put into my acting career. Um, so this has worked out a lot better for me. Um, but, you know, it's not for everyone, <laughs> I guess I would say. <laughs> We're not, we're not going to have a whole generation of actors becoming Wall Street headhunters. Yeah, I, I, mean, I don't know. If you can do it, you can do it, you know. <laughs> I know I know dog walker actors. I know, you know, massage therapist actors. <laughs> <laughs> well, so Stuck is playing through uh, this weekend, February 21st. Um, the website is StuckThePlay.com. Mm-hmm. And who is the playwright again? If anybody, Jessica Goldberg. If there's any theater companies around the country that are interested in, in checking this play out. Mm-hmm. So, any parting shots you'd like to get off here? <laughs> uh, come see Stuck. Definitely come see Stuck. <laughs> yeah, it's a great thing. Also, uh, Saturday, if you come Saturday night, it's my birthday. <laughs> I, I, uh, if, you, if you say that you saw this thing or listened to it, then, then I'll take you out. And he's turning And he's 18. old enough to go to... Oh, yeah. I was going to say... <laughs> I was going to say he's old enough to go to see a PG-13 movie. Right, right. That's even worse. I was going to say, he's legal now. I will take you to see Avatar. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, Kate McCluggage, Athena Maskey, and Marshall Pilot, thanks so much for stopping by. Thanks and for best us. of luck with this run and in your future endeavors. Thank, Thank you. Thank you. Curtain Call. Well, that wraps up Volume 402 of Broadway Bullet. Remember, you can find out information on all the shows that we talked about here and links and everything at our website, broadwaybullet.com. And uh, you can just look at the show notes for Episode 402. Uh, We'll be back in two weeks, first Thursday of March, with a lot of new stuff. We'll also be premiering James Barber's charity single, Walk With Me, for Haiti Relief in the next episode amongst all the great stuff. So be sure to tune in. So with all that said, uh, that wraps up this episode. Again, I'm your host, Michael Gilbo, and thanks for riding the Broadway Bullet. Well, I wouldn't want it to be too perfect every night. It is live after all. It is live. So, a little more about our brand new theater and business arts major. I know what most theater programs are like, and I've talked to thousands of artists. All of this told me that a new style of theater major was needed. Theater majors can get a pretty good arts education just about anywhere, but most programs do very little to prepare actors, directors, playwrights, technicians, producers, etc. to manage their careers. When you go into the arts, you are your own business, and you need to manage that 
to strategically plan for your career to grow. If you've listened to many of these interviews, you know you need to be self-starters to create your own opportunities. I'm going to make sure you are ready for that world. You'll get a ton of opportunities as an undergraduate. Actors will act, even as freshmen. Designers will design shows right away. Playwrights will see their shows mounted. Directors will direct. Producers will handle shows from inception to execution. Outstanding guest artists will conduct workshops, and outstanding students will even work on this podcast and travel to New York with me for interview weeks. And if that isn't enough, we've got an amazing program that will pay all or part of your student loan payments, even private loans, if you are earning less than $40,000 six months after graduation. That is an invaluable option that lets you pursue your passion in theater with less financial pressure. If interested, and I hope you are, Go to broadwaybullet.com. I'd love to help you launch your career.